This is a special edition of the Fidelity Answers podcast based on a recent white paper on factor investing in fixed income that's been popular with our clients. It goes without saying that this is intended for investment professionals only and will be of particular interest if you specialise in fixed income. If that's you, then we think you'll enjoy the next 20 minutes or so. And if it's not, then normal service will resume very soon. Welcome to Fidelity Answers with me, George Watson. Today we'll be hearing about why factor investing has been so slow to catch on in bond markets and how our fixed income team is approaching the challenge. And to that end, I'm joined by three of our fixed income team's finest. Lucette Ivano, Head of Systematic Fixed Income, Joe Hanmer, Director of Quantitative Research in Fixed Income, and Jennifer Jackson, one of our fixed income traders. A very warm welcome to you all. Thank Thank you. Joe, many of our listeners will be aware of factor investing from equities, but I think it's fair to say it's a subject matter that can get quite complex quite quickly. Just to make sure we're all on the same page when we start, could you kick things off with a quick definition of what factor investing actually is? Yeah, sure. So factor investing has been around for a long time in equity markets. And really, it started in the early 1980s, driven by some seminal research by Farmer and French, who discovered the initial three and five factor models which drive equity returns. And these are explanatory variables which explain the cross-sectional returns between different stocks within the equity market. Some that you may have heard of are things like value, momentum and growth, which are common factors talked about in the literature and also in the press. Um, But it's taken a long time for those same factors in the research to move out of the equity market and into fixed income due to, like you mentioned, the extra complexity and some of the other issues around fixed income markets. And what does factor investing offer investors compared to active or passive management? Yeah, so it's sort of halfway in between. If you think of the full spectrum of passive to active, where active managers have lots of ways they can try and outform their index, lots of different ways they can take positions within the portfolio. And passive funds have no ability. They want to try and track the index as closely as possible. Factor investing comes really in two forms, either as single factor portfolios, where Uh, The portfolio is trying to take advantage of a single factor such as value to try and outperform the index over the long term or multi-factor portfolios which try and combine individual factors to try and outperform even the single factor portfolios. And so those portfolios sit somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. They're not going to add the same amount as alpha as a full traditional active manager who has lots of different alpha sources, but they're usually implemented in a systematic fashion. Therefore, the cost is also commensurately lower in line with the lower alpha generation compared to active management. Now, you mentioned that it has been a lot slower to catch on in credit markets. So perhaps let's dive a bit deeper into that. Lucette, um, why has factor investing been slower to catch on? I think one of the main reasons that we can um, still experience in this market is that the return in the um, fixed income market are often much lower than what we've seen in the equity market. And therefore, the amount of quantitative resource which have been dedicated to the fixed income market tend to be quite uh, low. Fidelity, we have had quantitative teams supporting our active portfolio manager for well in excess of 15 years. And therefore, we've got our own set of data which has been uh, recorded over this similar period. So today we've got an advantage in terms of um, having data which has helped us to position all our active issuer positioning. And this um, set of data is something that um, has come to support very much the development of our multi-factor franchise today. 
Now, Jennifer, you sit at the coalface of fixed income markets. Um, what's the state of play when it comes to systematic strategies and how has that developed over the last few years? Um, so we've definitely seen sort of an increase in electronic trading uh, within fixed income. Um, sort of the, the technology available there has increased and that's allowed us to sort of move portfolios around on a systematic basis in a much more efficient way. So we're able to trade um, you know, multiple lists of, of bonds in one go and, and sort of make sure we're getting best execution on, on that sort of shift in a portfolio. The rise of electronic trading and, and the number of, of dealers sort of getting involved in that has really opened up sort of more pockets of, of liquidity within the market. And I think that's one of the things that has also held back this this type of investing within fixed income is being able to source that liquidity, being able to understand how much actually costs to trade and how much actually costs to enact a, and execute a portfolio. Um, and so we've sort of seen those uh, those costs come down and, and the, the increase in, in the number of trades being done um, electronically has, has really helped with the efficiency of these portfolios. So there's still a fair amount of trading being done in credit markets by voice? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the the majority of the trading that I do sort of away from systematic portfolios is done by voice so either on the phone or, or on you know, what we call it a, a chat room that's often because of the you know the nature of the kind of trading that that we do you know a company has you know one or two stocks it has you know scores of bonds uh, different maturities different rating different issue size and then also because you've got companies issuing debt regularly bonds season that they become old they become hard to find or, or hard to trade so often you're you're asking a dealer to sell you something that they don't necessarily own or buy something from you that they don't necessarily want to buy. Um, so you need to you know use your relationship and try to to understand the risk on on both sides. So the the majority is still done uh, by voice, uh, but we are seeing an increase in in the ability for for dealers to to price electronically and in, in competition with others. Yeah, and, and one of the issues there that we focus a lot on the research side as well is thinking about the transaction costs. A lot of the issues Jennifer highlights mean that trading in corporate bonds is much more expensive than it would be in other markets. And therefore, when you're thinking about factor-based solutions, it's important to focus as much on the transaction cost and liquidity side of the implementation as it is on the actual factor creation themselves and the alpha generation. And it links back to Lucette's point around the data and having good internal robust data around fixed income data sets going back multiple years to ensure that you can have very good estimates of what the actual transaction cost would be to trade the specific bonds that you want to buy in the portfolios. Well, on that point, I think perhaps it would be a good moment for you, Joe, to tell us about the model that you've developed. But perhaps if you start from from the top, and obviously, as you said, Jennifer, Bonds are different from each issuer, which adds an extra layer compared to equity markets. You have to decide the issuer you want exposure to and then which bond rather than equities. You can just select the company you want exposure to. So how do you approach that? Yeah, and that comes down to the heart of really our approach to factor investing within fixed income, which is that we make a clear distinction between those two parts of the decision process. In equities, it's quite simple. You have one decision to make, which is which companies do you like based on the factor scores or the multi-factor score that you create. And therefore, you want to own those companies or go overweight those companies in the factor portfolio that you implement. In fixed income, every company has a multitude of different bonds, of different durations. We have different levels of hierarchy within a capital structure. Some bonds are subordinated to others and different durations uh, in terms of uh, how long each bond is outstanding. 
And that means that applying the exact same methodologies and equities is, is much more complicated. So we take a step back and first of all, we think about solely how do we decide within fixed income which companies we want to invest in. We don't, we don't at this stage consider the individual bonds that we're going to purchase within the portfolio. We look at the companies across our fixed income spectrum and we apply our multi-factor approach, which assesses the key drivers of these fixed income uh, returns between the different companies. And we find strong value in three core factors that we use, which are valuation, fundamental and sentiment as the three core drivers of fixed income. We combine those three multi-factor scores to give us a view on each company within our fixed income universe. To get those three signal variables, where do you start? Do you take in data from the credit markets only? Yeah, so we see three real main sources of potential data. Uh, firstly, we look at the equity market. So as we mentioned at the very start, there's been a long history of factor research within the equity market and lots of academic research, lots of practitioners implementing equity style strategies. So the first obvious place to start in fixed income is to look at those same factors that are used within the equity world, translate them into fixed income and see if the same factor definitions would work and explain fixed income returns as well as equity returns. Secondly, we've got more fixed income specific data. So for these type of factors, the way we think about it is rather than the exact definition that we use on the equity side. So if we take value as an example, an equity valuation metric might be dividend yield is a very common way. Uh, what we might do is think about how can we define valuation from a fixed income perspective. And in fixed income, we might look at how steep the curve is for a given issuer, or we might look at how levered a company is, how much debt that company is taking on for the amount of compensation you get for owning that company's debt. So these are taking equity, the underlying definitions from equity factors, and working out how to apply them within the fixed income landscape. And how about sustainable factors, environmental, social and governance? Do they play any, any role in the, the factor creation? So far in general, I think the jury is still out on whether sustainable type factors are a driver of returns or not. We've seen some evidence histo historically in the, period, in the last 10 years of outperformance of higher ESG scoring companies. But so far, that tends to be quite correlated to flows which means it's more of a behavioural factor. It's not necessarily an underlying factor that's going to consistently provide additional alpha. So the way we approach it within our selection process is we include as much data as possible. So we allow our selection process, which is automated, to choose between ESG scores, equity scores, fixed income scores. But if it, does, if it finds that some of those scores do not work and do not provide additional return, it will not use them when it combines our underlying factors to create our multi-factor approach. Those weights are adaptive over time, is that right? Yeah, we, we like to use a, a what I'd like to call a slowly time varying set of weights between our factors. What we definitely don't uh, try and do is try and time the exposure to different factors at different points in the cycle. We think that's extremely difficult and it's been shown uh, numerous times in academia as well that it's very difficult to time which factor is going to perform best over the next one year or three years or five years, for example, based on economic environment, recession risk, for example, which are the type of things which could drive value to outform growth, for example, uh, in the equity landscape. I think as a fixed income systematic investor, I think that's a particularly important and differentiated point that we don't try to fit the factor um, historically. 
And we don't also force the factor to be part of the equation if they don't add value because what we've observed too many times is model where um, the factors will vary over time, but we don't necessarily have a natural tendency as human being to let them um, vary over time. So uh, we know the regime, the change of political scene, and also the market development mean that um, the factor uh, which influence return of a particular bond or um, series of bond need to vary over time. And that's something that um, Joe and his team have been very prompt to integrate in the equation. And it, and it links quite closely with the data issue that we've discussed around in fixed income, the amount of historic data that is available is much shorter than it is in the equity markets. In equity, we can do back tests over 30 years of data to get a really good idea of which factors perform well. In fixed income, corporate bond markets have only really been mature for 10 or 15 years at the most, which is why we think that going forward, having uh, an amount of dynamic weighting between factors that as we get more and more information through time might help us understand better which factors drive fixed income returns is going to be an important part of the overall process. I mean, one interesting um, development we've seen also over the last 15 years is obviously the bank disintermediation, which means that the number of issuers coming to the public market has increased quite dramatically here in the euro market, but also in the dollar market and noticeably in emerging market. And that over time will give us um, obviously more issuers to select from. But um, that also means that we have a more shorter history for some of these time series. I saw you nodding your head there, Jennifer. Is that making your job more complicated with the extra number of issuers? Um, it, it doesn't. It, it doesn't. So in, in Europe, you know, you have seen a huge rise in, in issuers sort of, well, since QE started, basically. And for, for fear of going a little bit off topic, the, one of the main aims of CSPPs of, of corporate bond purchases was to encourage companies to borrow money. So you have seen a rise in um, sort of first time issuers who quite often will come to market and borrow very, very cheaply. And then you won't see them again for five years or, or 10 years or, or whenever they need to come in and sort of refinance their debt. So for, for fear of disagreeing too much with uh, with, with Lucette, who's much more uh, experienced in this than, than I am, some of those issuers are great. You know, we've seen new sectors rise in, in Europe, a lot of sort of reverse Yankee issuance. So US companies coming over and, and issuing in euros. But there are also companies that come and issue a five-year bond and we'll see them again in, in, in five years' time. So I think that's where the work of the, the research analysts and the credit analysts and also trading where, where we can uh, get involved is quite important to understand what is the company actually doing? Do they do they really want to come and, and be a proper bond issuer and reissue on a regular basis and maintain a liquid curve? Or do they want to just come and take advantage of the very, very low rates in, in Europe and, and lock in that, that low funding and trying to understand the difference in, in corporate behaviour is, is really where the, the analysts come in. Well, that is a neat summation of the process of selecting the issuers. And then obviously, as we've all said before, you then have the task of selecting which bonds from those issuers you want exposure to. Could you briefly explain how you go about that? Yeah, so there's there's three main things that we think about when selecting the which bonds to use. So we've talked about step one, which is we've created a process based on our multi-factor scores, which is going to help us decide which companies we want to own within our portfolio. We now need to decide of those companies that we like based on our scores and that we want to own, which bonds will we use to take exposure to those companies in our actual portfolio. And there's three factors. Two of those factors are valuation-based, so they're looking at how cheap bonds are within those companies relative to each other. One of them looks at how cheap the bonds are relative to the curve, and another looks at how 
much return you will get from owning that bond over a year, given no other changes within the market. But then the third point, which is the most important, is then the transaction cost element. So a lot of the time, as Jennifer will know, bonds look very attractive from a valuation perspective just because they are extremely illiquid or they're very expensive to trade. So you wouldn't actually be able to implement that in your portfolio. So when selecting between the bonds of the companies that we like and we want to own, we need to be very careful to balance the valuation and the attractiveness of the individual bonds against how much it's going to cost to purchase that bond in the portfolio and how liquid that bond is, i.e. are we actually going to be able to purchase that bond to implement the strategy. And on implementation, Lucette, I'm, I'm interested to know once Joe's model uh, comes up back with a list of bonds to put in the portfolio, how do you then go about putting that into action? So obviously our proprietary software is the software which calibrates our solution and establish uh, the risk budget, which means the solution will be neutral beta, neutral um, duration curve and currency. And this is very important because our clients should think about an input of multi-factor in their um, solution, potentially even their um, multi-asset solution. And this is the perfect building block in terms of um, the asset allocator, how they can have exposure to credit, but then control um, extremely precisely what is the impact of volatility, risk and return, all three in their final portfolio. So this is a behavior of a portfolio which is quite well established and can be uh, modelized particularly precisely in a multi-asset portfolio. Now, the, the next advantage is obviously how multi-factor derives uh, most of its uh, return through issuer and then um, bond selection. And often uh, where um, company fail to um, establish strategies because they would not know ahead of the implementation what it costs to implement. And here we're using three set of data, obviously our experience of trading um, credit here in London, but um, also in other um, investment centre in the world through in excess of two decades now, but also third party data in terms of um, volume of trade and liquidity, as well as the key characteristic of the instrument itself. And these three pillars are how we derive the final um, transaction cost and the final attractiveness of um, a given instrument that we are prepared to invest on the curve. But it's also uh, giving me, as a um, systematic fund manager, the cost or um, the expected cost of implementation ahead of sending the trades um, to the dealing desk and um, to Jennifer. So um, what it's giving me is also an indication at time of how um, tricky it is um, to implement uh, this portfolio. And we've seen it uh, through the summer and now in December where liquidity is reduced, the model is definitively being had adjusted and the turnover is um, to be expected at this time of the year will be much lower on a monthly basis. That's a very interesting point actually. Obviously we're approaching Christmas and liquidity is lower. How does the model adapt? So we normally uh, rebalance the model um, once a month. Obviously if we have um, flow intra-month we tend to um, replicate um, the existing model upsizing or downsizing uh, through the month. We think that uh, monthly rebalancing is quite fair given the frequency of the data that we have um, embedded um, in this model. Accounting data traditionally comes in only um, every quarter or um, six monthly basis. Obviously uh, revision of estimate from uh, various analysts tend to be more frequently based. But then the 
fundamental is probably the most um, slowly moving uh, data set that we have in the model. Sentiment and valuation will um, vary more rapidly, but we don't want to implement um, so much turnover that um, the cost will be actually punitive to a strategy. So we have had to find um, an intermediate time horizon to hold this portfolio, and we think a monthly rebalancing. That said, the, the model tends to rebalance between um, 7 and 10% of the um, portfolio on a given month unless liquidity has been reduced and is too punitive and the model has self-adjust extremely well through um, time period um, as we watch through the back test and now through our 300 and, uh, million of implemented asset. And a lot of that dynamic nature of the amount of trading we do is due to our transaction cost estimations that we create and we now have sitting alongside the traders on the trading desk, we have data scientists who look at the data, source new data, make sure that we've got very good data around all of our trading systems. And as a research team, we work closely with those data scientists from the trading team to make sure that our liquidity estimations are as accurate as possible. And when those, if those estimations deteriorate, if it becomes more expensive to trade certain bonds in the market or liquidity is harder to come by, the model will dynamically adapt to that and start to avoid those names which are harder to trade and trade more in the liquid names that are possible to source in the market. And Jennifer, from a trading point of view, how is dealing with orders from a systematic strategy different from the orders that you get from our active fund managers? I think they're more uh, consistent in in their design. So it's always going to be what we call a list of of bonds. So I, I might get you know anywhere from ten to fifty names um, that that we're going to we're going to trade depending on the size of the rebalance. We're, we're looking for efficiency in implementing those portfolios, but balancing that out against ensuring best execution because it makes no difference to me as a trader if I'm trading for a, an active manager or a systematic portfolio. They're all my clients, treat them all the same. I want them to get as, as good execution as, as possible. So, Joe, the all-important question, I guess, in some ways, is how does the model perform? So, in fixed income, clearly people are very concerned about how much alpha we can generate. And if we think about the spectrum we talked about at the start of completely passive to fully active, fully active funds have many more sources of alpha and therefore can target much higher alpha sources. We've run our back tests over... Uh, over 10 years of um, data and what we see is it's slightly different in the different markets. So in the more developed, very liquid markets, so these are things like US investment grade, we see much higher potential for alpha generation. So our back tests in US investment grade outperform by around 75 basis points versus the underlying index on an annualized basis. When you start to move into the less liquid markets, transaction costs become more expensive and those transaction costs eat into the alpha that would be available in the strategies. So the other two markets we currently have tested and have uh, started to implement are the US high yield market, which again is a quite developed market like USIG. It's been around for a long time. Data is very good. But due to the nature of high yield, transaction costs are higher in those markets, which means that uh, the alpha generation actually, although it's similar to US investment grade, it would be much higher if we didn't have to pay the same transaction costs. So I guess it's a balancing act between the amount of alpha you get and the transaction costs you have to 
take on. Exactly. And that's automatically done in our process where we're trying to balance out how much turnover to do in the portfolio. The more turnover we do, the more alpha we should be able to generate by owning the correct companies and correct bonds, but the more expensive it will be to, to create that alpha. So it's finding the right balance between some level of uh, implement of turnover that's actually implementable in the market and how much alpha we want to generate in the strategies. Lastly, Lucette, perhaps you could leave us with some of the bigger picture ideas. Why might clients want such a strategy? Where might it fit in with their existing fixed income portfolio? I think it's fair to say that um, multi-factor, the way we've implemented it, still give us a fair scale of um, customized um, solutions. So whether clients want to enjoy an ESG tilt or some exclusion or some part of the market, um, I'm thinking in particular um, emerging market, which can be taken in or out um, of a solution. This is a nice building block to have as precise and very concise um, allocation where you believe there's um, relative value, be it US um, investment grade, Euro investment grade, or US um, double B, single B. So I would say it's quite a building block into um, an overall framework where you can have a allocation to a high alpha strategy, which uh, would tend to be more active, where um, you definitely have a um, portfolio manager taking the issuer selection to having a multi-factor where this um, issuer selection has been given to home model, especially a free pillar model, which um, encompass fundamental value and um, sentiment. Well, it certainly sounds like a very versatile tool. I think that is an excellent place for us to finish the conversation. Many thanks to my guests, Lucette Ivanow, Joe Hanmer and Jennifer Jackson. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Do join us next time. And if you'd like to find out more before then, please visit fidelityinstitutional.com. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.